Okay, so listen, it, it is. It is such a sweet thing to be able to just enjoy the Lord and and be with Him. And, and, we, and we come into a place like this and we have... Oh, thank you. That would be that, huh? Thank you, Dan. <clears throat> well, you know, we come into church and we, and we do church because we think we should, right? I mean, isn't that what Christians do? I mean, for religious at all, we go to, we do church and we, and, and we, we don't even know what that means. We just kind of come and I don't know, we probably should sing a couple songs. We probably should listen to someone talk forever. And in the end of it all, maybe we've ticked our box and, and, we, and we've, we've kind of said, all right, we've done our thing. And it's so sad because, well, let me say this, and it has nothing to do with our text, but many of you are familiar with the story of Mary in Scripture. You don't have to be a Christian, grow up religious, to kind of get the idea that this idea that there was a girl that miraculously was given a child in a way that is so contrary to science, in a way that makes no sense whatsoever. She's never known a man, and yet she's pregnant. Now, any of you ladies want to try to pull that routine, it's going to be a lot harder for us to believe it's true. And it would even be for her, regardless of how pure of a life you've kept. It just doesn't make sense, except that it's in Scripture. And it had been promised. One of the important things to recognize, anything that happens with Jesus, had been promised at least a thousand years beforehand. So it isn't like God was making this up as he went along, just like a great mystery writer. He knows the end from the beginning, so he can leave the clues so that if we follow on to them, we discover these things beautifully. But ladies, put yourself in the shoes for a moment. You're pregnant, though you've known not a man. In a culture, by the way, where nobody applauds you for that. Where everybody looks with great disdain. Because it's the one thing that really give married women, again, in that culture, honor. But married, unmarried women, it, it's actually, it makes you unmarketable for marriage, in essence. And you've been given, you, you're carrying Jesus. You're carrying the Savior of the world. God is going to come in flesh. And God is knitting his jersey inside of you. And you can feel it crazy would that be? I mean, every move, every time you got indigestion, you'd start to wonder what part of heaven was involved in that. I mean, think about it. I mean, just the craziness and all of the changes. And every time you barfed, you'd think it was holy barf because, you know, and as strange as it is, you know, and then fix my stool. Uh, and, 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 and all of that, you have, this, I mean, you have this promise that's going to change the entire universe. It's going to split history in half. But nobody else around you gets it. Now, good news, God did talk to your fiancé so that he's not going to bail on you. But, but your mom and dad, how are they going to figure that one out? I mean, and even though mom had promised, it's still, uh, you know, I mean, where, where do you go with that? You know, and... Of your neighbors and the church you go to and all that. I mean, imagine what that would be like. And I would imagine the very promise of God that would be so beautiful inside of you, you'd become ashamed of. 
you'd start hiding that cool little baby bump. And the cool thing is, every girl that's gotten pregnant in our fellowship as of recent, and be careful, ladies, of drinking the water here, um, they're all like skinny as a rail, you know? So it's like when you start get to getting a baby bump, it's, it's pretty significant. You, I mean, you, they lay down, they look like an omega, you know? It's like that because they're so thin. And, and it's, so you get it from the beginning. And, and I just I, I think about what that would be like for her to want to cover that up, to kind of tuck it away. I mean, she's got God in the flesh, the creator of eternity that the heaven of heavens can't contain, that God is pouring himself into her, and yet she just doesn't really, would you really want to show that to anyone? In every place you go, every whisper you'd think was about you. And that would be really, really rough. I mean, how much of an outcast could you feel than that? But something crazy happened. See, three months before Mary got pregnant, her old aunt, who hadn't had a baby, miraculously had it, is pregnant too. Three months ahead of her. Think of it as your nan. Somebody in their 70s, their 80s. I mean, they're, you know, they're ordering off of the pensioner's menu at the places that offer it. And here she is, and all of a sudden she gets pregnant three months beforehand. And, and the news might have traveled, maybe not, but somewhere in all this, now it's certainly caught up with Mary. And Mary does something interesting. Mary, she leaves. She leaves her house. That's the comfort of mom and dad and the ridicule of her neighbors and all of those people who are going to whisper and point and talk like any small town would. And she was from a small town, perhaps 60 to 120 people. That's pretty small. I mean, by that point, you know, if you have indigestion, everyone in town knows it. We came from a small town where at one time someone came up and said, oh, we heard they sold your house. (laughs) <laughs> we didn't even know they was, it was for sale. Uh, we were only renting it. So that's what happens in small towns. People catch information, and they catch it sometimes quicker than you do. But when Mary left, all that ridicule and all that shame and all that desire to hide the most beautiful gift she'd been given, she went and saw her aunt and... I, I only picture it from where I come from, where everyone's got a little bit more color and flavor in the sense of culture, personality. And, and, and it's like, she's like, whoa! I mean, and there's that, whoa! Oh, man! So why would the mother of my Lord come to my house? And everything, boom, everything changed the moment she walked into that house. Because, see, she came into a place where somebody that was more pregnant with the promise than she was. And there in that place, two people were able to lock hands and eyes and giggle about God's gift. And they could look at each other and go, isn't it amazing that God would do this? And here you are. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus, and if you don't know what that means, I'll give you a chance at the end. Prayerfully, it'll be clear. If you've said yes to the gift that God has paid for you for, I mean, God's a righteous judge. Every righteous judge has to punish wrongdoing. But this God who created you, this God loves you and doesn't want to punish you with the punishment you or I deserve. 
So he allowed one provision. And that provision is actually really simple. As long as somebody who didn't have any sins to pay for, any crimes in their heart to be punished for, if they were willing to volunteer and pay your price, to take your punishment, the Father would allow it. And that disqualifies any normal human being because we all have sin. I can't pay for yours. You can't pay for mine because you got your own and I got my own. So God knew the only one qualified would be him. So God choosing to wrap himself in flesh takes that position then. And when he takes that position, he has to be born like you or like me if he's going to pay for it. And there's Mary. And if you've accepted that gift, Mary's child, Jesus the Christ, his payment on the cross, the payment that all humanity owes, me and you concluded. But it's only half the story, just as Scripture promised over a thousand years beforehand, Jesus rose again so that he could not just pay for our sins, but offer us a brand new life. And if you've said yes to that, God has put within you a promise. If you haven't said yes, I want to warn you again. You'll have that choice before we're done. But if you have said yes, God has placed within you his promise. And inside you, something is happening, even right now. Changes. Things are happening. And you are different than science. And you become increasingly more different from the world around you. And you become the butt of jokes. Nobody signed up for Christianity, at least in this room that I can tell, because we thought we'd be the coolest people in London by doing so. Like we'd be popular because of it. It was a classic social move. It was for some of us social suicide. But when he starts changing you, and then you spend your life out there, it is really easy for that very promise God's putting inside of you to want to tuck it away, to want to cover it up, to want to kind of hide it, to want to do something so humiliating to God that we forget it's a promise, we forget it's a gift, we forget it's the greatest thing we could have. And we start looking at it as if it were some form of burden. And then you come in a room like this. Do you realize what should happen here? We should be giggling about God in this room. Not like some forced, contrived laughter or anything like that. But the fact that what we really have, that we start to realize again, what an amazing gift we've been given. I mean, an amazing gift. Please, please, let's make church that. So when we get in his word, we can be like, wow, look how great this gift is. Look at how amazing it is to not just have God inside of me, changing me from the inside out and manifesting, but also how amazing it is to be adopted by the Father who sent him in the first place. There's the whole idea. Now with that very lengthy exhortation to start with, that puts us behind time. 
on a day that we have communion. So I want to, we'll get, we'll jump into our text. We have only a handful of verses, but they're very, very beautiful and profound as be expected. So do this. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and this beautiful lady is going to come over and give you one. Uh, I know I've known, I've married her and known her for half my life, more than half my life now. I've been married to this gal. I don't remember what it was like not to be married to her. So anyways, uh, Bible opening up to Matthew chapter 17. If you get your Bibles, please. Go back one verse, chapter 16, just so that you can kind of see. I remind you, when this was originally written, it wasn't like, now, chapter 17. I mean, that was where we could be thankful for the Masoretes who would add that 500 plus years later, 580 years later. We would be thankful for that because it helps us get there. Could you imagine? For some of you, it's hard enough to find Matthew and it's the first book in the New Testament. But imagine if I would have just said, turn to that place where Jesus is transfigured in Matthew. We'd be here for another half hour. So we can be thankful. But just the same, the danger in that sometimes can be that we can now uh, forget that sometimes a chapter prior is building on where we're at. So in chapter 16, verse 28, it says this. Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles. That's tents, of course. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain... Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. His disciples asked him, saying, Well, then, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered, and he said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And I'm going to read this text one more time, starting in chapter 17. But this time, I'm go- you're probably familiar, if those of you might be new to Scripture, the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, which means good news. They're the account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, uh, told by four different perspectives. And this particular event in history takes place as recorded in three of them. In those three, and it isn't like they're competing texts. Think of it more as 
you have three different or four different filmmakers looking at the same event, and each one of them has a different camera angle, so they're going to focus on different things, even though it's the same event. Now, the only reason I say that is some of the details of this entirety will be given to us in the other two texts, which will be the next Gospel, Mark, and the following Luke. So I'm just going to read through it again, and I'm going to add those other texts to it so we kind of get a more comprehensive look at the story. So here is chapter 17. Again, it starts with this. Now, after six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Adding to that, by the way, Mark tells us that his clothes became shining. Now, I'm not too sure. Well, until we put sequins in clothes, I'm not too sure how that works. It says, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer could could whiten them. I don't know if any of you have ever been in deep snow. They have a thing called snow blindedness, which is where the snow becomes so bright, even on a gray day, that it actually can damage your retinas. Uh, In Luke, he adds this, Luke 9.29, As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening, a glistening, shiny set of clothing. Verse 3, it tells us, then back in our text, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him, Luke adds in Luke 9.31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease. Literally, by the way, the word in the, in the Greek is exodus. They spoke of his exodus or his death, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 4 then says, Peter answered and he said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Luke 9.32 says, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. When they were fully awake, they saw the glory, his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us, let let us make three tabernacles as we see here. And it says, not knowing what he said. So in other words, he was speaking and he didn't even really know what he was saying when he was saying it. And Mark tells us why. Mark 9.6 says he said this because he did not know what to say. Uh, A general rule, by the way, if you don't know what to say, nothing is a great option. Well, for what it's worth. Uh, It says they were greatly afraid. This is while they were still speaking, a bright cloud then overshadowed them. Suddenly that voice came out of the cloud. Luke tells us, by the way, while Peter was still speaking, a cloud came, covered them, and they were really, really afraid. They were freaking out as they entered the cloud. Now, all that to say, by the verse 9, Jesus then says, by the way, tell this vision to no man until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Mark 9.10 tells us they kept this word to themselves, questioning what raising or rising from the dead meant. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for the beauty of being able to open your word, for the privilege of this time you've given us now. Please, Lord, minister to us in it. Open our hearts and let us hear you. And let today be so perfect. Speak fluent us, please. Oh God, please, that every one of us would hear you now, would know you, would say yes to you, would respond to you. Draw us with cords of loving kindness Broaden our view to that of eternal and make this time perfect, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please 
don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Now, listen, Jesus has been, uh, there's been, well, let me say it this way. There's been a real tension that's been mounting between Jesus and the religious leaders. If you're the kind that has a problem, the reason why you don't want to accept the gift of Jesus is you have seen religion. You've seen politics. You have seen things that really contradict the way you would expect a God to, a proper, decent, loving God to respond. It's good to know Jesus himself had those same problems. As a matter of fact, might I say it this way, they had these problems with him. Uh, Jesus, by the way, now the, the, the problem has is, is caused so much grief that the religious leaders from headquarters, and I can remind you that is Jerusalem, have traveled the 70 miles up to Galilee to find fault in him, and all they can really come up with is ceremonial hand washing. I mean, they've gotten to the problem now where they're just trying to find anything in him, and the best they can come up with is that he doesn't wash his hands the way they say he should. Jesus will then leave after that altercation and he'll head 35 miles north out of Israel to the area of Tyre and Sidon, primarily really for a fractured mom of a train wrecked daughter. If you remember, a mother who had a a possessed daughter and Jesus really seems to have made this house call for her. Then he'll head back south 45 to 50 miles to Decapolis to feed 4,000 people and then now head up here another 37 to 40 miles. Now that means that Jesus has made a trek of about 120 miles throughout these last two things, and they're only given a handful of verses. Imagine if 120 miles that you walked would only be given a few verses. What would they say? Here are very radical things. Now I have to give you this is my opinion, and I like to make it clear it's my opinion. The Bible never says which mountain he chose, but it does say he went to a very high one. In Israel, there aren't, well, there's really only one very high mountain. Only one that gets snow caps for a fair portion of the year, and that's Mount Hermon. You can go south from there, and you can find ridges. The Mount of Olives is a ridge. The Valley of Jezreel, above that, there is a ridge. The western hills are a ridge. There's Mount Tabor, those that surround the Valley of Armageddon. They all are really relatively not very high. As a matter of fact, it's important to know, even the Sea of Galilee is above sea level. But there is one mountain that is rather high, and that's Mount Hermon. Wherever it is, and I'm just going to play that out because that would be the 40, 37-mile trek. Jesus has taken these guys, and understand, we've had a couple really rough and ugly situations. I mean, we've had a situation where the religious leaders, the guys that we thought would probably rally behind Jesus, really have a lot of problems with them. And Jesus now has taken us, and, and we've all traveled. What we're going to find, we, all 12 of them travel to the mountain, but only three go up with them. That's interesting to me. They have no idea. They haven't read this chapter. It isn't like they woke up this morning and thought, maybe Jesus will do something really funky today. All they know is they're following him again. The last time we followed him up north, remind you, we tried to hide out in a house and a woman found us because her daughter was a mess. We don't know where we're going. And Jesus gets to the bottom of the mountain. He turns and he says, all right, Peter, James, John, you three, the rest of you guys can stay here. And what would it be like to be the other nine? Great, we'll just uh, wait here now. And Jesus heads up and he's going to be gone for six days. Now, we don't know how they ate. The Bible never gives us any of that information. I've given you now the three accounts in roughly an entirety, exhaustively in regards to the information. 
All we know is that Jesus is heading up and the guys, now I remind you, we, we, we in London actually have this as a benefit. We walk a lot. I mean, to be honest, because sometimes we're just tired of running to wait for a train. Uh, but we walk more than most any place I've ever been. I mean, in California, everybody drives everywhere. In Chicago, everybody drives. They'll take the L here and there when they want to get robbed. But, but for the most part, you know, we, we walk. We walk a lot. And it is very different. But I remind you, imagine if we were like, okay, our next stop is Brighton. Because now we're starting to talk about that kind of mileage here we're putting on our shoes. We'll head back up. You know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll kind of go up to Cambridge and back. Uh, that's another story. And not only just taking that trek, but we're taking the trek and now we're going to go uphill. So the reason I say that is when a, a handful of fishermen that are manual laborers who walk all the time start getting really tired, it isn't like we're talking about a couple guys falling over and grabbing their shin because somebody looked like they got near it. I mean, what we're talking about now is we're talking about guys that are, that are relatively good shape being rather tired. This is a very serious track. And I imagine the altitude would have made a difference too. Now, it's important to know Jesus has gone up there and he's going to have a board meeting in essence. But go up with me for a moment in our heads, if you will. Because by verse 1, we just kind of read that they went up on a high mountain by themselves. There's Jesus and these three guys. They would say Jesus, some would say he had most potential with these guys. And so that's why he kind of reached out to them. I don't know how many of you have ever been part of education. Uh, my wife and I both taught secondary school for you know, five, six, seven years. The students you spend the most time with are not normally your most gifted. The students you spend the most time with, well, they're usually your trouble students, if you care. Those are the ones that if you leave the room, something will probably be on fire by the time you get back. I mean, that's kind of the way that works. The reason I say that is the more I read about Peter, James, and John, I kind of get that's the kind of guys he's dealing with here. And he takes these three guys up and we're tired. But for a moment, I'd like you to just kind of figure out what this would be like. Now, now we've gone up to places because Jesus would often go up on these mountains to pray. I get that. But what would it be like now? We go up higher than we've ever gone up. We don't have any record that any of these guys have a history of going up to Mount Hermon. I don't know why we would go there. But now Jesus has kind of taken us up. And, and I don't know, have any of you actually been up on a mountain? I mean, something that's considerably higher than, like somewhere over 5,000 feet. Anywhere? Okay, you know, when you get up there, everything really changes. The moment you kind of get to the level, now I'm not just talking about skys. There's some skyscrapers in China, for instance. We were actually we were in one that was just at cloud level during a, and it was all windows was the wall that faced the sky. Uh, we were at the cloud line at a uh, at a lightning storm. It was the most cool thing. I mean, I was there kind of at the window and the girls are screaming, get away! They're hiding behind the couch, you know. I'm like, oh, this is cool. Maybe that's why I have this, anyways, electric thing. Uh, it, but, but, but there's this thing about where you get this place and now all of a sudden you see like you've never seen before. I mean, you're brought up above the situations you're at. You're brought above the cloud layer. You're brought above the, you know, I mean, if you've flown, you know what this is like, because when you fly out of London, everything's gray. I mean, here it's, it's raining or it's trying to pretty much all the time. Let's be honest. I mean, at best, the kind of break, sun breaks, sun goes, hi, remember me? And then pff, it's gone again. I mean, you know, we get that. 
but everything kind of shades of gray. And, 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 and all of a sudden you get in this plane and you get above that cloud line and you kind of break through it and it almost feels like you have to push through it like a scrum. And then it breaks through and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, where did all these colors come from? And wow, look at how big everything is. And you look out this tiny little window, you know, like you're in prison. And you're kind of peeking out this thing and all of a sudden you see more than you've ever seen in your life. And you start to see things like the shape of the earth and as it curves off to the sides and these colors that spray the sky and you forgot those things were there so imagine jesus taking these guys up for a moment and, and we see i mean from the from nearly the top of mount Hermon, you can see over to cyprus an island 100 miles off the coast of in the mediterranean sea i mean imagine you could see into iraq from there i mean for us the view would be it would take our breath away and it appears to by the way for them but I don't think that's what Jesus was seeing. I think, oddly enough, it was the opposite for him. As Jesus is up on that hill, his scope is starting to get smaller. Because he's going to descend this hill down to Galilee and descend it farther into Jerusalem and then die, get murdered on a cross, and then be put in a grave, in a cave, and then descend even to those who are being comforted at Abraham's bosom. I mean, Jesus is making his descent now. This is as high as he's going to get before that. And he's heading down. And for us, everything is spraying open. But for Jesus, everything is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's all getting to the cross. And what a weird thing for us there as these dynamics change. And we're all just going, wow. But tired, so we take a nap. And as it happens, of course, we read that Jesus now, as we start to fall asleep, these guys show up. And, you know, it's very easy for me. The first thing, I naturally just kind of go to one place and I move forward. Usually, my, traditionally, I kind of look at this and I think, well, I know this. In the 160s B.C., there was this guy and he was a lunatic. He called himself Epiphanes. Uh, Epiphanes means the embodiment. And he literally thought he was a god in the flesh. He was Greek. He was, uh, in essence, an emperor, and, and, and in that, he demanded that they made all of these idols of himself that everyone would bow down to. They called him Epimenides, which means the crazy guy. And he went over and took a, took a small army and brought it over to Israel because Israel was, well, they were giving him trouble. They weren't interested in this, we're going to bow thing. And the Greek, invincible Greek army, remember the whole Alexander the Great thing? The invincible army came over there, and there, was these, there were these guys, these ragtag priests, whose surname, by the way, was the Hammer. That's Maccabees, by the way. And, and, they, and they went and they said, look it. They said, if you don't bow, we're going to kill you. And, and the priests said, if you don't bow to the uh, idols, the Greeks were saying, we're going to kill you. The priests said, if you bow, we're going to kill you. So I guess you're going to die either way. And, and all of a sudden, they brought this idol before them, this bust of, of uh, you know, of Epiphanes, um, and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and one priest bows down, and this, this other priest, one of the Maccabees, takes this javelin and bam, just drives it right through him, and all of a sudden, everyone's like, Arr! nobody's bowing now. And it started a revolt. And the revolt became a crazy revolt to where actually these... Peasants, in essence, took on an invincible army and, and won. 
They actually got the temple back. It was this crazy story. But during this time of, of Antioch's epiphanies, he outlawed the reading of the Torah. And so what would happen is, is that Israel still had two other books. I mean, and so what they would do is, is instead of, it's because the Torah, you know, they were saying, well, this was kind of what defined Israel. I mean, it was like kind of saying they outlawed the New Testament. So Israel, you know, like we would have to just read the Old Testament would be kind of the idea. So what they did is they had the rest of it, and they took that, and they called it the Haftorah. Haftorah, by the way, ultimately we would call the prophets. So what happened is, is when these, these Jewish people took back the temple and were able to restore proper worship, well, they didn't remove the Haftorah. They just added the Torah back in. So before, we were just kind of reading the first five books of the Bible. Now, in essence, we're reading a whole lot more comprehensively. So what they do is they would read the Torah and the Haftorah, or we might say they would read the law and the prophets. We might say that, you know, if we were not allowed to read the New Testament, we read the Old, but then when it was restored back, we just started reading the Old and the New, was the idea. So the term was the law and the prophets, from which, by the way, ten different times in the first five books of the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, we're going to see that used, the law and the prophets. Well, the perfect representative of the law, of course, would be Moses, because he's the one who brought it down by the way, from a mountain, and who, who better is a representative of the prophets than Elijah, who, of course, went up a mountain as well and stood and actually challenged the prophets of Baal. So I get the idea of Jesus sitting there having a meeting with and, and saying the collective entirety of Scripture agrees with Jesus dying on the cross. I get that. And so that's the, the first place I naturally go, is that Jesus, no other person could have done what Jesus, what Jesus did because Jesus had to do it. And understand, that included to the day that Jesus would descend that we call Palm Sunday. Daniel had nailed it down to the day, by the way. In Daniel 9. The whole idea of him being born in Bethlehem, but being called a Nazarite, yet having to be called out of Egypt. Well, that's easy for us because we read it in text, but imagine figuring that one out. Imagine being born of a virgin. Being his arms pulled out and his hands pierced, his side pierced, Gentiles gambling for his clothes, his heart melting like wax inside of him and his throat drying up. All these things prophesied from 700 to 1,000 years before he came. And it was, this, and by the way, prophesied that of, of crucifixion 600 years before it was even invented. And I get that Jesus... And, his, and dying at the cross, separating him from every other religious leader, that Jesus' death at the cross was in complete fulfillment of the entirety of Scripture. I get that. And because of that, I usually just kind of move forward to, of course, Peter's blunder. We kind of like that because we can be encouraged, those of us who are, have a tendency to say something stupid. Uh, and I'm really gifted at that, by the way. Some of you who know me know that. But I think I've, I've never just spent time really thinking about it any more than that. But what happens as a result of that is I kind of rob it of some of the depth that really reaches my heart and prayerful years as well. Because it wasn't just that. As I started to think about these two specific guys, by the way, I started to think, well, these two guys had this with, in common with Jesus. They both knew well the temptations and the challenges of the wilderness. I think, hmm the comfort they could have brought each other in that. 
They both know what it's like to be called to a group of people, to the same group of people, to give them the truth and be rejected. They know that well. They both knew what it was like to challenge false gods. Moses, of course, taking down the gods of Egypt. And, of course, Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal and Eshra. It's interesting, though. Moses, as a deliverer, his deliverance was at the cost of the first begotten son. We know that. That's the whole, whole story of Passover. But Elijah, Elijah was a restorer. And his, of course, restoration came at an accepted sacrifice. But what I found interesting is what took place just before that sacrifice. I mean, the guy kind of shows up. And we don't know much about him. We read Elijah the Tishbite. What's a Tishbite? What's a Tish to bite, for that matter? We really don't know. Is the guy even Jewish? We really don't know. Eliyahu is, an, is Hebrew, so we assume he is. But we really don't even know what a Tishbite is. All we know is there's this king, and he's a really dumb, wicked king named Achav. And Achav, by the way, God says amidst all of the other rotten things he did to really make my day worse, he marries this Jezebel character, and she's a real cookie. Now, I'm loose paraphrasing, but you get the idea. I mean, the guy was like, not only was he rotten, but he like picked the worst gal he possibly the one who hated me the most, and he married that girl. He's like, there was nothing left for him to do to make things worse. And, and all of a sudden, we read about this guy, Eliyahu. And he shows up out of nowhere, and he comes to the king, and he says, it is not going to rain until I say so. And then God says, get out, and then he runs out. No, if you're a king and you're kind of bored for things, what would that be like for you? You're sitting on your crown, you know, sitting on your crown, sitting on your throne. Hopefully you're not sitting on your crown. And, and, and all of a sudden this crazy guy just sort of shows up and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And, you know, now here, a day of that would be pretty miraculous. Let's be honest, right? I mean, if he said that here and it was sunny for a week, we'd be like, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. You know, everyone here would be bright. Well, not everyone in here, but most of the people in England would be very bright red. Anyways, and, and so he leaves, and that's kind of where we, and then God says, get out, and then he gets out. Now understand, God told him to go do that, so he did it. He heard it, he did it. And then God said, get out, he heard it, he did it. And then God says, now get out, I'm going to send you up north to Syria. And he did it. And then God said, there's this widow there, I want you to go, take to, talk, go talk to her. So he does. Now this widow's a Gentile. And what happens is, this widow, by the way, she's, got, she's about to die herself. She's really impoverished. Elijah steps into this situation, and then he says, you know, she's been so good to me. What can I do? And then he says, you know what? She doesn't have a son, and she's barren. And Elijah steps in, and he says, you know what? God wants to give you a son. And she's like, stop joking with me. My heart's been broken over this too many times. Well, just the same, God gives her a son, a miraculous gift. Of a son. And then the son dies. And Elijah is responsible for seeing our first guy raised from the dead. And then Elijah goes back to restore rain. And then, but before he does that, he has one other thing to do challenge the false prophets. And when he sets up the altar, he says, Lord God, let them hear, let them know that I'm doing this because you told me to. Hmm. And as you know, God, of course, confirms the sacrifice, then brings rain. But that little cookie, the girl that he married, Jezebel, she has a real problem because now 850 guys from her staff were just killed in a day. So she throws threats out, oh, I'm going to kill that Elijah guy. 
And something changes in Elijah because we read, but when he saw the threat of Jezebel. Interesting, because up to that point, it was all about what he heard. He heard, he heard, he heard, he heard, and he did. Elijah was the guy who was listening to God. Listen, so, so Elijah goes and he flees out. And do you remember where Elijah goes? He goes up a mountain to a cave. And as he goes out on this mountain, he, gets, he, gets out to the, he comes out of, the, out of the cave. And there, are, some of you are familiar, there's this big wind. There's this big earthquake. There's this big fire. But God was not in them. And then it was a still, small voice. Interesting. Elijah was trying to feel these big things and he wanted these big tremors and he wanted these big shakes and these big, he wanted the fire and all these things. But what he had to do is he had to get back to listening again because that's who he was when he was at his best. When you just started listening and God spoke to you because you were listening. That's where his power was. Fascinating, by the way, because what Elijah had to do is he had to learn to listen. Huh. Now, if you would ask Moses, on the other hand, hey, Moses... What would you really want? If God could give you anything, what would you want? You know what's interesting? I think he told us, by the way, in Exodus 33. Because in Exodus 33, he says to God, show me your glory. Do you remember that? And God says, well, I can't really show you, but I'll proclaim my name as I kind of fly by. And then, if you were to ask him later, what do you really want? I didn't think that Moses would have told you he wanted to get into the promised land. He'd gotten that far, but he was never able to take the people in. You know what I find really interesting about that? If you have your Bibles, do this with me. And even if you're brand new, you can do this. The last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. By the way, if you're going to come to church here, it's not Revelations. Don't ever say that here. You're going to drive your pastor crazy. It's the book of Revelation. It's only one because it says, the first verse says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. But go there for a moment. Revelation 1. You know, it's our only physical description of Jesus in the Bible. And it happens to be when he's at home. And you learn a lot about a guy when he's at home. No pretense. You know, when he talks the way he wants to, when he does what he wants to, what he wears when he wants to. And you learn a lot about a guy when he's at home. Here, look at verse 14. Can you find Revelation 1.14? His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now understand, a flame of fire is lightning. You ever see lightning? That's what his eyes were like. Talk about bright eyes. His feet were like brass, literally, and it says brass as if refined in a furnace. The term in the Greek is charlibanon, a very easy word to say. Uh, the closest thing we have to, to this, to be honest, is arc welding. Have you ever seen a guy kind of zipping with the arc welding, the sparks that fly, how bright those are? That was his feet. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. You know what you get in description of Jesus? Look at the two things you get about him. You get his glory... And his voice. Did you notice that? His glory and his voice. His glory, he outshone a thousand suns. His voice, he outspoke a thousand waterfalls. Do you see that was the description here? Look at the two guys that are meeting with him. The guy that wanted his glory and the guy that knew his voice. Isn't that interesting? It always revolves around those two things. What's interesting is the two things Moses would have wanted. 
And that would be to see God's glory and to get in the promised land. Moses got both of them here. Did you notice that? He's in the promised land seeing Jesus glorified. But did you realize these three guys, Peter, James, and John, they're up there and they get them for free. They get to actually not only see the glory of God, but they get to hear the voice too. Only in the voice is saying, Peter, shut up, politely. But, but understand, they're still hearing God's voice. And what would it be like for Jesus for a moment to be able to kind of get back to just, for just a moment? Now look at if you're the kind that you work in one of those places where you have to wear like an outfit you would never wear under any other circumstances. Or if you want, if you remember going to school where you would never, oh yeah, that thing with the badge and the, oh yeah, I want to look like someone from Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, and you're like, I would never wear this outside of this. Remember what it would be like if you couldn't wait to change into something more comfortable. Ah, give me clothes I like that feel like me, that don't smell like this. Imagine Jesus having to live in that flesh for a whole 30 plus years, never being able to take off the uniform until, except for this one moment, he gets a little bit, a hint of what it was like just being at home by himself again. I mean, just comfortable again. And, the, and it outshines the sun. And there he is speaking, as, as we read, by the way, in the other Gospels. He speaks about his death. So he's there speaking with the guy that knows what it's like to hear the voice and the guy that knows what it's like to hunger for the, for the glory of God and, and to be able to sit there with them and to sit with the one, by the way, who when Moses went up the hill, he came back glowing. Do you remember that? Because of the glory? And the guy that went up the hill and finally heard the voice and came back down. And now they're both up a mountain with Jesus. And the voice that this guy heard was Jesus's. And the glory that this guy walked down with was Jesus's. And the guy who gave that to him is there. It's as if Jesus is meeting. He's his, their boss. And he's meeting with these two guys. And imagine how amazing that meeting would be. But I wonder if what Jesus really wanted was more than that. I mean, if you have to face the cross and you know you're going to die for people who hate you, what would you want more than anything else? Well, these are ambassadors. These are good ambassadors, but they're no substitute for what you really need. Now, Peter jumps up at a moment like this, doesn't know what to say, so he says something anyways. And I am taking it that the guy was a drummer. No, not, not Daniel. Daniel's an amazing... I don't understand how Daniel is who he is, because the drummers I know, usually they're the first guy to say something. Everybody's thinking, but we just... We're smart enough not to say it. You know, and, and Daniel's one of those guys. He's smart enough not to say it. But, but the, traditionally, the drummer is the guy that you're just like, you always kind of have to have a muzzle handy just in case. And, and, and Peter's like that. He's just that. You know, everyone kind of has that one friend that you, you have to look embarrassed because, oh, man, I can't believe he said that. But you thought it sometimes. And, and Peter jumps up. But what he says seems so, make so little sense. He's like, hey, let's build three tents. No, why not six? There were six guys up there, Peter, James, and John, too. Just three of them. And then I think, was Peter really thinking about, did he know how to make a tent? Was Peter really thinking, where do I get the materials for tents? Was Peter really thinking, huh? Now, we don't even read, how did they know that there was Elijah and Moses? Do you think Moses like showed up with a sign that said, Moses, or like he had a rod that turned into a snake in front of him, or he was parting waters, they, the snow kind of split on, I mean, you, you, but you know what's really cool? Do you ever have one of those dreams where you see someone and they don't even look like someone, but you just know it's this person? I think God gives us those moments to help us with texts like this. 
You know, when my wife and I were first married, way, way long time ago, uh, you know, I hadn't seen my brothers for over 20 years. I mean, I hadn't seen them since I was really, really little. They left our house. Oh, I was probably two, three. And, you know, it's, and I knew they existed. That was about it. I remember hearing one of my brother's voice. He used to send things called cassettes. Uh, now, you might be able to buy one of those in an antique shop. You wouldn't know what to do with it. You kind of put it up on your you know, mantle or something. But and he would send them. And I just remember his voice real clearly as my mom was dying because it was his mom, too. Uh, he would send, you know, the bands he was in. He inadvertently got me playing guitar and bass. But... Um, I mean, it's all I really knew about them, any conscious part of life, until we were first married. And understand, my wife's the opposite. I mean, she, I mean, when we got married, there were like 350 people, 345 of them were her family or really close friends of the family. I, I, that sounds like a joke. Ask her. Uh, and if we were in a boat, we had to see, the, the boat would have fallen over. It would have collapsed, you know what I mean? It would have capsized. Cause and it was like if you watch our video after the end where they, you know, you do this at weddings where they're like, hey, what do you want to say to the bride and groom, right? And they pass it around. It's like every person had the same thing. Suzanne, I've known you since you were a little girl. And Anthony, and I'm Anthony, there's no H in my name. Anthony, can't wait to meet you. I mean, that was like our whole wedding video, right? It was like cute. But the only reason I said, she could chase her family to this side of the Mayflower. So you can imagine she likes family. And I came out kind of like the lone, right? I'm like, I hunt alone, right? And, and all of a sudden, we're, we're in one of these mornings where... There's a purpose to this story. But, I mean, we're in, we're in one of these mornings, and I, I, I have to get up at, like, 4 or 5 in the morning to go to work. Uh, and, and I work, like, 70, 80 hours a week. It would be great for our wedding, our marriage. And uh, I'm lying about that. And, and I woke up one morning, and I just was really kind of troubled in my spirit. And I'm not, like, one of those kind of people. Like, I wake up, I'm not, like, normally one of those kind of guys. You know, it isn't like I shredded wheat and go, I think I have a vision. No, look at if, if you are, praise the Lord. As long as it's the Lord's, I'm good. But, but, but I woke up and I was just like, man, I just really, and, I, and my wife's kind of, you know, that kind of conversation. Hey, honey, you know, sorry, Chewbacca. And, and I just said, you know, hey, I, I feel like there's a stirring in my spirit. I don't know. And maybe the Lord wants to tell me something. Yeah, maybe I'll tell it to me in a dream. I actually called work and said, you guys, I'm really sorry. I can't be there today. And I had a dream. And in the dream... I was with my brothers and my sister, uh, who, I, of course, how would I even know what they look like? And I'm like, they're at some particular public gathering, and I'm like, wow, and I, I really think my brother lives actually in Northern California. And, and so I woke up, and I have this dream, and it was about family, and I was like, what? You know, Chewbacca was gone. All of a sudden, she was, you know, she was on the other side. She was a little sparky. And, and, and I'm like, I think, and ultimately from that, we were reunited with my brother, who was a Calvary Chapel pastor. And we wound up moving up and living with him for a few years before we planted our first church. I mean, it was amazing how that worked. But all of that to say, forgive me for the lengthy side. You know what it's like when you get those places where you just kind of go, well, that's just Moses, that's just Elijah, duh. You know? And that's kind of where this is at. But what's interesting is they're talking about Jesus dying. And, G- and Peter wants to go and jump into the middle of this. Now think about how different the tones are. You have Jesus. You're going to need to be totally sacrificial, totally surrendered, and they're going to murder you. 
And Peter's like, oh, man, this is it. I knew why he brought the three of us up here. We are going to be the big boys. All right, let's, let's set up headquarters. And you can see how strange that must have looked. And imagine what it would be like for Elijah and Moses to look at Jesus and go, this is going to be the Pope. I mean, it just strikes me as funny as I kind of look at that and think, this is your guy. And he's just so real in Scripture. That's what we like about him, isn't it? Because he's like us. But at that moment, everything is interrupted by the Father speaking. And my natural inclination when I walk through this text a little quick is God's just saying, Peter, would you just shut up? Interesting, because right before this text, if you remember, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And And Jesus goes, you are so blessed. The Father revealed that to you. You've been listening. But you need to listen to this. I'm going to die. And Peter goes, no way. And then Jesus has to bench him. I mean, he just just heard. And then Jesus, and Jesus is like, set down, Junior. And now Peter's seeing something. And then he has to be benched again. But I don't think I've ever really thought about how important that voice was, not just for Peter. That would have been great. Wouldn't it have been great to be Peter or John? I'm sorry, James or John at that moment and to hear God from heaven tell Peter to shut up. I wonder, because if you realize John and Peter seem to have quite a rivalry throughout text. Read the Gospel of John, just the, the resurrection. Three different times John says the two of us ran to the tomb, but I got there first. I mean, John really wants you to know that. So I wonder what it would be like for John to kind of hear that and look over at Peter and go, <laughs> this is, and you can see Peter going, this is never going to go away. And that's where I always kind of went with it until this week. You see, I don't think it was Peter that needed to hear that voice the most. I think it was Jesus. I mean, think about it. He's sitting with two guys that are saying, well, according to all we represent, you're going to be mocked, spat upon, abused, laughed at, pointed, tortured, have the skin ripped off your back, have guys treat you with any unimaginable point of contempt. And you're going to ask them to forgive. You're going to ask the Father to forgive them, even when they're nailing your wrists and hanging at you and mocking you and telling you to come down from the cross. Again, our perspective is so wide, and Jesus is going like this to the crosshairs of the cross. And in this moment, I could see, wouldn't you freak out? I mean, which one of you, any form of sacrifice is an easy thing. I mean, which one of us we will think, yeah, sacrifice, sure, of course. I love them, of course. It's one thing to sacrifice for my children and my wife. It's one thing to sacrifice for you. It's another thing to sacrifice for the person who just made fun of me on the bus. To sacrifice for the person who was drunk and really wanted to make my life miserable while I was waiting for a train. Well, that's a different story. I would imagine that at that moment you could see Jesus going, Oh God, please, take me above this situation higher and comfort me. And listen to what the Father says. This is not just my son. This is my son. I love him. And I'm well pleased. 
Could there be two things that should comfort a child more than those two things? I love you and I'm pleased with you. I mean, I read through those so quick, but as a dad, those words mean so much to say them. I just, I just love you. I love the fact that my kids are tactile. I love the fact that they fall into me, and the bigger I get, I'm more like a couch now. But they fall into me, and they kind of disappear. But they, you know, and we just there's a comfort level there, and I would pray that they've never, ever doubted my love. Now, my pleasure, perhaps there are times they knew that I wasn't pleased with their actions. But at a moment when you're just kind of hating yourself or concerned about the future or just knowing something really rough is going to go on, isn't it just great to hear that? Now look at we're almost done, so please be patient. We are, we are just running this, but please hear me. Maybe right now life is rough. Maybe there are a lot of challenges. Maybe there are things, man, and you're just like, I never thought I would be part of this chaos. Hey, the city is full of it, isn't it? One thing we get here in abundance is chaos. We get manic speed, and things fly at us so quick, and some of them are rather deadly, and, and it feels like you, you never have time to just breathe, you know, take, take it off, and, and just you're always there with your filters and your court vision to make sure you don't get blindsided by some nonsense. And it's there, man. No doubt. The city's full of it. But man, when you face things and you just get overwhelmed, do we do that? Do I do that? Do I go to that point where I'm like, God, can you take me above all this? And let me just hear these two things. That you love me and that you're still pleased with me? I mean, the love thing, I, I know Scripture. I'm, I, he's contractually obligated to love me. I get that. You know, but, but it's another thing to hear it. You know, and it's another thing to, to be like, no, you really do. But the pleasure thing, have you ever, ever, ever thought that God would be pleased with you? That he would really be pleased with you? Zephaniah 3.17, one of my favorite verses in my whole life, tells us, Lord God is in your midst, mighty to save. And it tells us three specific things. It says he'll take delight in you. Take delight in me. Quiet me with his love. And rejoice over me with singing. When was the last time somebody was so into you they started to sing? And this is my God. This is the God that I've surrendered to. What a deal. And what about today? Here in this place. We've gathered. We sang a bit. Now we're going to do this. Then we're going to have communion. Hey, let me, let me just ask. Is this the God you know? And do you think because life is rough right now that maybe... He's not pleased with you? Do you think he's just making your life miserable because you've earned it? Well, then what's Jesus' story? You're never going to be tortured as much as he was. And yet, it wasn't because God was angry at him. It wasn't because the Father hated him. And at this moment, can you see God just saying, the Father saying, Hey, Jesus, I love you. And I'm pleased with you. 
And when Jesus started his ministry, that's how it started, his public ministry. Just somewhere in it, it's easy to, get, to forget it. And there's a time, maybe you knew it. There's a time when you knew God, oh, I'm adopted because I said yes to the gift of Jesus. And, okay, I get it. And I know God must be really pleased and I haven't really sinned much yet. I haven't left church. You know, but then you start accruing those things again and then you forget that. Hey, do you think my kids are perfect? You don't need to spend an awful lot of time with them. They're human like the rest of us. And worse yet, they're kind of like me and their, and their, and their mother. So you're going to see things pretty quick because we're good with that. And but it doesn't make me love them any less. It doesn't make me delight in them any less. And I don't delight in them because of their perfect, their perfection. I delight in them because they're mine. Because I can still stare in the face of my kids and, and see them as tremendous gifts by God. Even in their craziest moments, I've never doubted that. So look at in the end of it all. Jesus has to learn that the conversation that Peter was... Peter has to learn that the conversation Jesus was having with these two was about the fact that God wasn't here to tell us that our life was going to be better if we could just avoid all suffering. But that if we could hold on to him, he would carry us through it. And there's a great glory on the other side, a greater glory on the other side when it's his suffering. So hear me last thing, and, we, and then we're going to go to prayer. And we'll, go, we'll cover the Elijah issue a little bit more next week. <clears throat> Because the Father did say this, and this, of course, clearly wasn't for Jesus' sake. He says, hear him. And when I hear God tell me that, there's a couple of things I have to ask. Well, when, if God were to say, hear him, the first thing I would think is, well, what did he just say? And then the next thing he says, I better really pay attention to. Does that make sense? It's interesting. The last thing Jesus had said was, I'm going to die, go to the cross, I'm going to get tortured to death, and then rise again. Oh, by the way, if you really want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross and follow me, too. So that was the last thing I heard, was death is required. So what's the first thing Jesus says on the other side? He says, arise, don't be afraid. It's like, as I look back, it's like, it's going to die. As I look forward, he's like, but there's going to be a rising, so don't be afraid. And I could see the father saying, now listen to him. Will you let what was die so that I can bring a brand new thing that you'll not have to be afraid of. And I get why Peter needed to hear that, but not just Peter, James and John as well. I find it interesting because of the necessity of suffering. Very small books. Peter writes two letters, first Peter, second Peter. Do you know what they're about? They're about suffering. I get why he would write them. Because I think he got this point. As a matter of fact, in that he would write, and we saw his excellent glory when we were up on that hill. He understood, and he says, and because of that, we have the prophetic word all the more confirmed. I get why it got there. Please hear me as we pray now. We could spend our life trying to avoid pain, and I think that for the most part that's intelligent. It isn't like, hmm, I wonder what it would feel like to get hit by that bus. That's a bad idea. But sometimes we would avoid necessary pain, like not going to the dentist because you're afraid that they might drill, but you'll get a whole tooth out of it. Not going to the doctor to get the change you might need. 
Now, granted, there's some doctors, it's like if they have to put an L on my left foot because something needs to be operated on there, I'm already nervous. You can't figure out which foot's my left foot. Anyway, you know, thought anatomy was part of this. Anyway, but, but I get the idea that if we're trying to avoid maybe a confrontation with someone we need to speak to because we know it'll be uncomfortable, but it's still an important one. And though it's painful, it's the, it's the right one. Or just choosing to follow Christ, even though we know that that means that people are going to make fun of us, even though we know that. Choosing to be bold, even though that means it's an outcast. There's an amazing glory on the other side of that. But we have to let the old die for the new to rise. I'll just say, don't be afraid. So if you are a Christian here, you've said yes. Are we willing to let him lead us up a hill like that and just show us more than the wide expanse, but the narrow view that we need, to be honest, to pick up our own cross and follow him like we should? Because we are confident that there's a greater glory if we would. To live a life of sacrifice. But if you're not sure if you've ever said yes to Jesus, it's not about joining a church. We don't have a membership. It's not about, you know, all of these things you've performed, it's about the fact that God sent his son to pay that price. That was the bill that was paid, and he paid it, and then rose again and offers you a brand new life. Why in the world would you want to pay a bill someone else has already paid for? Think about how they would insult the person who's already paid. And I'm here to say that in a moment, as we go to prayer now, I'm just going to give you a choice right where you're at just to say yes to this gift. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe that God really raised them from the dead? God says, I'll rescue you. I'll make you whole. You'll be saved. But that's the choice you need to make. I can't make you make that choice. The real question, though, is why would you want to say no? Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for what you've taught us in it. And I just confess to you, Lord, there's sometimes it's so easy to get caught under the overcast of the craziness of our city that we can kind of forget how important it is to get alone with you. Let you take us above it all. And then taking us above it all, that we could see, Lord, and we could hear again. But I know that there's so much craziness out there around us. But I recognize my life with you is to listen. To listen for your voice. And to let you manifest your glory around me and in me. And I realize that you've called me to listen and to pray with a listening ear and to live with open eyes. So Lord, I pray for every one of us who have made 
a call, responded to the call, responded to that fact that you really want us, that our lives would be ones where we pray, listening, and we live looking. And Lord, for any of us who have maybe here gotten caught up in just the world in such a way, Lord, that we would be more hesitant and we'd be quicker to hide, Lord, the very glorious gift you've given us. Please reinstall today that excitement, that love. Please, Lord, get us to where we can hear you again. And when we see the glory at the end of the tunnel is yours, Lord. And I know from this point on, his disciples, your disciples, Jesus, would never look at you the same. Wondering when the next time heaven was going to crack open just a little bit again and you were going to shine like that. And to think how amazing it would be for John to see you even more so. Outshining a thousand suns, your voice greater than a thousand waterfalls. How amazing that must have been. But then I think there's going to be a day I'm going to see you and see that very thing John spoke of. Let me live that life now, Lord, in light of that. And here in this room, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, while we're in a place where we're really trying to figure you out, get you, is today, even in this lengthy diatribe, you've heard God call to you and you've said, you know, he's right, I, I, I really, I don't think I've ever really said yes to this gift. All the religion in the world can't save you. All the nice things you do can't redeem you. Because there's a bill that needs to be paid and God has paid it. And you need to reconcile whether or not you're willing to let him, willing to cash that. But I, that's not my job to convince you. That's his. And here's the good news. is I know right even now he's working on your heart to do so. So here in this room, if you've never or you're not sure if you've ever said yes to Jesus, and today you want to walk out of here confident you have, you've accepted this gift, then I ask you to listen to this prayer and at the end, agree with a prayer of amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. I mean, I know that's what you call it. And that sinner, that's just because I'm human and I'm, I'm like that. But you tell me in Scripture you love sinners. You're a friend to them. You also say in Scripture that you so love me. That you gave your only begotten Son that you paid my price on the cross. That there, all of my punishment was punished. All of my crimes, my guilt was punished. You paid my bill. And just like Scripture promised, on the third day Jesus rose again. And now you offer me a new life. A life pure, whole, free, a life that's yours. Adopting me as your own. 
taking me in as your love, rejoicing over me because I'm yours. And if the only thing that's keeping me from that is a choice, will I make that choice today to say yes? I say yes to this offer. I say, have me. Take all of my faults and failures and nail them to that cross. Take all of my resentment and my grime and my filth and nail it to that cross. And then give me a brand new life. The one that belongs to you. That I could be yours like you created me to be. So I make that choice today. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you're offering, I'm taking. So I'll take you now, I pray. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. You've heard these choices we've made today. And I pray you would be blessed in that. I know you are. You tell us that there's more rejoicing in heaven. All the angels that belong to you, Lord, rejoice over one person who's made such a choice. And I pray that even those who've made that choice today would see that and hear that. Cement these choices we've made today. Solidify those things, I pray in Jesus' name.